Welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. Today's reading is taken from the book of Nehemiah, first part in chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem, or any claim or historic right to it. The second part of the reading is taken from chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God, and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall, at the exposed places, posting them by families, with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. 
and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Should we give Aaron another round of applause as we welcome him to teach us? Three applauses. Uh, that's pretty good. Maybe we'll aim for four or five before the end of this. Uh, but thank you for that introduction, Pete. Uh, yeah, I went here as a, as a student, uh, so it's a real privilege to be here this morning. And I just wanted to note uh, that I have played basketball with Pete for a little while, uh, and Jordan, who is also up here. Uh, but I've got to say, Pete is a bit of a beast uh, on, on the course. So he's got some secret hidden powers. Um, uh, yeah, I will say it. Um, I am turning 28 tomorrow. It's <laughs> four. <laughs> but I'm really starting to feel uh, my age. I've been to the physio tw- sorry, uh, twice the last week. Um, I'm no uh, Manu Ginobili. If you know him, he's 40 years old and he's playing in the NBA and he's still dunking it and doing all sorts of crazy things. He's amazing. Anyway, I've waffled on too long. Um, Again, it's a real privilege to be here, so thank you for having me. But I do have to say, I have had a bit of a cold the last week. So if I start uh, croaking uh, or sniffling or something, uh, if I fall off the stage, please someone catch me. Um, But yeah, so I get the privilege of continuing our story, our series uh, on Ezra and Nehemiah, which is a really interesting book. Because uh, it's so different. It's quite different to the other historical books of the Old Testament. Uh, it, it, it reads almost like a private diary of someone who's just trying to record and remember just as much information as possible. Uh, so we get, we get a lot of kind of weird lists. We get told how many pots and how many pans are brought back. We're told how many uh, how many donkeys and camels come back. We've got lists and lists of names and how many there were. Uh, There's even a long written and signed contract in this book. Uh, And it's all interspersed uh, with a narrative uh, that doesn't run strictly uh, concurrently or chronologically. So it's a really, really interesting book. But it's precisely for that reason uh, that most scholars would say that it's actually a very, very a historically uh, accurate source. And, and when we read it, when we kind of put the pieces together, we get this glimpse of real hopeful, optimistic, uh, enthusiastic community who have just returned from quite a tragic period in their, in their lives and are really having a good crack at rebuilding and starting again. And so this morning... Uh, I'm looking at uh, the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to talk about walls. Uh, We're going to talk about what walls mean um, and what it takes to build a wall. So I know that sounds super exciting, super interesting. Uh, So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are present. Lord, that you are a God who... Uh, is interested and cares for his creation. So, Lord, I pray that you come now, illuminate this text, 
to us. Help us to hear from you. Teach us something about what it means to be community. Uh, Lord, I pray that you help my voice to hold out. That would be great. And thank you, Lord, for how much you love us. Amen. So city walls. Oh, thank you. That's great. <laughs> city walls are the first chance for a city uh, to give a really good impression uh, of itself. Uh, the, the first thing that people would see. Uh, and it demonstrates strength, solidarity, power. It sends the message, this is not a place that you want to attack. This is not where you want to come. You're not getting through here. Um, about a year ago, just over a year ago, uh, I was in the UK and I visited, oops, I visited York. Uh, have many people been to York in the UK? It is an amazing city. Uh, it's so interesting. I loved it there. But it's got this, this big wall that rings almost all the way around it. I think it's supposed to be the most extensive medieval wall in the UK. Uh, it was actually built by the Romans, uh, and it's interspersed by these impressive, huge gates. Uh, and it's still so intact that you can actually get up on it, and you can walk along it. So I did that, and you just get this real sense of, of power, of strength. Uh, it's just a real incredible feeling. And I was standing just outside the wall and looking up, and I, you can't help but imagine what it would be like to be a uh, medieval person and you've just rocked up to here and you're looking there and you are terrified. You have no idea what's on the other side of that wall. You have no idea who could be hiding behind those little slits in the wall or up along uh, the top of the wall. They just exude power and strength. And so they're imposing. But a wall can do much more than that. A wall can actually define a space. Uh, can actually, uh, it, it says which room is which, and it separates this area from that area, this community from that community. Like in a house, just a simple wall can separate a dining room from a bedroom. And because of those walls, one is a dining room and the other is a bedroom. So in that sense, a wall functions as both a barrier and a boundary. A barrier in that it can prevent people uh, from crossing a certain point, uh, either keeping unwanted armies out or perhaps keeping uh, criminals inside a particular area. Uh, it can also protect you as you sleep at night. Uh, but it, it's also a boundary in that it, it defines a space and it defines a community. And it's that idea of, uh, of, of a wall defining a community that has really, really stood out to me as I've uh, read through Nehemiah. The theme for this series, as we can see, has been a community pursuing God's vision. But I want to kind of switch that around a little bit today and say that God's vision is community. God's vision is community. And that idea of community was central for Ezra and Nehemiah. 
So over this series so far, we have been introduced uh, to this group of people returning from Babylon. They had been conquered, uh, displaced, sent into exile. Uh, Their temple had been destroyed. But then sometime later, about 70 or so years later, uh, we have Ezra and Nehemiah, both of whom were given permission uh, to lead the community back to Jerusalem and rebuild and, and make a go of, uh, of getting themselves going again. Uh, two weeks ago, Mark introduced us to this man, Nehemiah. And we can learn a, a couple of interesting things uh, about him. The first was that he was a cup bearer to the king. A cup bearer to the king. And the king was King Artaxerxes. Now, a cupbearer, that sounds like just a glorified bartender. It sounds pretty good. Um, but the, his real role uh, was to actually taste the wine that the king was about to drink. Yeah, that sounds good, good wine. But you had to do it to make sure that the king doesn't get poisoned. So you're literally taking your life uh, in, in the wine's hands, in a sense, every time. You, you're risking your life in this role. But it was a, it was a really uh, privileged position. People wanted this position. I don't know why, but they wanted it. It, it, it demanded a great deal of respect. Uh, and so Nehemiah, he was probably actually uh, one of the high officials, one of the important advisors uh, to the king. He was trusted by the king. The king was trusting uh, this uh, it was trusting Nehemiah, firstly, to choose good wine, but also to make sure that he doesn't die. Uh, so Nehemiah was probably present at all of the secret meetings, all the important councils. He likely heard all the plans and knew a lot of the national secrets. So he was in a really good position to not only hear about what's happening elsewhere, and he does hear about Jerusalem, and when he hears about Jerusalem... He gets terribly sad because the report is not good. The walls are in disrepair and they are in trouble and they are in shame. So he's in a good position also to ask, uh, to make some requests of the king. And he does. He asks King Artaxerxes for permission to return and to rebuild the city walls. And he actually promises to return. And we read a bit later that he does return for a bit. And then he comes back to Jerusalem. Uh, But then he pushes his luck a little bit. Uh, He asks for letters of safe passage. And then permission to use timber taken from the royal parks. That's a a big deal. Ancient kings loved their royal parks. They loved their timber. But it was granted to him. Uh, this, This was a huge request. And Artaxerxes said, yep, that's fine. Uh, Nehemiah credits that to God's activity and provision. But it could also demonstrate just how much uh, Artaxerxes trusted him. So Nehemiah, he returns to Jerusalem. And he was probably uh, one of the, well, he was probably the governor of the region. And he goes about assessing the damage and sees there's a lot of damage and then convinces the people of the importance of rebuilding the wall. As was read just now, 
Nehemiah says, I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. We will no longer be in disgrace. We find right there the main reason for why rebuilding the wall was important. The ruins were seen as a disgrace. You see, a ruined wall, it can't really function very well as a barrier. It can't well keep people out. Uh, It doesn't demonstrate strength and power. Nor can it really function uh, as a boundary. Because as a boundary, a ruined wall demonstrates a ruined community. So the rebuilding of the wall had just as much to do with the rebuilding of the community itself. And that rebuilding of the community has been a major theme throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. Now these books, though spelling out kind of the pragmatic details of a community returning from a foreign land, are largely concerned with the redefinition of their identity and the reassertion of themselves as a distinct nation, set apart to be a priestly nation, a light to the surrounding peoples. So for Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the walls uh, was an essential part of this re-identification because its physical presence uh, defines the community. Just the presence of the wall ringing around says that within that, that is the community. And we also find throughout these books, say in Ezra 3, uh, the worship practices are restored. The altar is built. The burnt offerings are practiced again. Passover is celebrated and reinstated in Ezra 6. The law of Moses is again taught publicly in Nehemiah 8. And the Sabbath observations are again reestablished. We also see some social practices reinforced, like the denunciation of marriages. Uh, to people from other countries, which Dave spoke about last week, which might sound at first a little bit xenophobic, demonstrating a fear of foreigners, but it's more likely simply reinforcing the national identity again. It's saying, this is who we are. There was another major construction project uh, in Ezra chapters 3 to 6, which is the reconstruction of the temple. Uh, And that was significant because the temple represented the very presence of God. And the very, uh, sorry, the Israelites' very identity was identified, uh, sorry, was defined by their relationship with God. God called Abraham into this land. God brought them out of Egypt back to this land. Now God is bringing them out of exile into this land. And the temple temple. The temple represents God's very presence. And that is who they are. They are God's chosen people. So each of these religious and social practices, the reconstruction projects, it's all about the re-establishment of their identity as God's chosen people. Sorry, I just, I just got to, <laughs> I'm using my tablet Um, I just got a photo from Nick. (laughs) It just popped up. (laughs) 
the problems with technology. <laughs> so the walls of the temple, the worship, the social practices, they were all markers of the identity uh, as a distinct nation. Uh, they, they all demonstrated who these people were. And that's why they were so significant. That's why it was so important for them as they were returning from this foreign land to kind of reestablish them, to rebuild them, to, to say this is who we are as people of God. So I, I'll return to Nehemiah in a moment. But I want us to consider our identity as a Christian community. In Jesus' death and resurrection, we are offered the enormous privilege uh, of becoming children of God. And the Bible tells us that in this, we become united with Christ. Paul says in Galatians 3, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, our identity is now in Christ. And that is a good thing because it means that our identity is no longer one tarnished by sin, but that through Christ's obedience, sacrifice, and resurrection, we are purified. In the same way that Paul does not literally mean there is no longer male nor female, God does not remove our individuality. No, God is a God of diversity and creativity. But it means, rather, that as we clothe ourselves with Christ, that as we literally put on Christ, it is no longer our shortcomings, our failings, our stresses, addictions, our whatever it is that might define us, but instead it is Christ's purity, his holiness, Christ's righteousness that now elevates us to a life of freedom, a life of living in unity with God. We are told if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. That is our identity. So what is our temple or walls that define our community? What are the markers which identify us as a distinct community? First, there is no longer a temple. I mean, we have churches and buildings that we come together, but they don't have the same significance that they did back then, or at least it's just a different significance. You see, there is no longer a physical building that represents the presence of God. Rather, we are that temple. We have become that temple. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? We don't need to go to the temple to find God. Rather, God is within us. For the Jews returning to Jerusalem, trying to reassert their identity, they are reaffirming those essential aspects of who they are as a distinct nation. The walls, the temple, the worship and social practices. For us, the essential aspect of who we are as a Christian community, which we should reassert regularly and regularly remind ourselves of, uh, is that our identity is now rooted in Christ Christ. 
we learn in Galatians 5 what that identity should look like, the identifying characteristics of a Christian community are the fruits of the Spirit. Those are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are what people should see when they look at the church. These are our wall and our temple. Paul elaborates in Colossians 3, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. As the nations surrounding Israel would look at the wall and see a community and then the temple and the practices and see a nation dedicated to God. People today look at us, or they should look at us and see these things, love, joy, compassion, forgiveness and so on and see a people dedicated to God. These are the things that identify a Christian community. We could spend whole sermons looking at each one, uh, but we can uh, kind of uh, sum it up by anything that has to do with the building up of relationship. And above all, what identifies the church is Christ. We are a body, his body, his bride, his temple, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. For Nehemiah, the reconstruction of the walls was important to reassert themselves and to reaffirm their identity. So now let's move on. Let's return to Nehemiah, uh, see how it's all happening. They started working on the wall. Uh, they, They got going. Nehemiah arranges all the various families and groups, including perfume makers, goldsmiths, priests, and merchants. Basically, everyone was getting involved uh, to work on the different gates, from the sheep gate, the fish gate, the valley gate, and even the dung gate. Uh, I found it interesting that uh, there was only one person who was sent to repair the dung gate, um, which means either no one else wanted to go there or no one wanted to attack it in the first place. Um, because maybe there was a good reason for it being called the Dungate. But, but it's still worthy of honor. It's still worthy of being rebuilt. It's still worthy of being part of the community. But I do wonder, of all the names, why Dungate? Seriously, they could have called it anything else, but Dungate. It doesn't inspire much confidence, not like all of the other gates. But anyway. Anyway, two foreigners named uh, Sanbalat uh, from Samaria, just north of Jerusalem, Tobiah from Amman, just east. Uh, they did not like the idea that the wall was being built. Um, and they, they come up regularly. And so does uh, Geshem uh, from Arabia. Uh, they're always complaining about the wall. They start mocking the Jews. And as we saw, as was read out, 
sorry. As was saw and as was read out, uh, there was opposition brewing. They didn't want this wall to be built. Technically, these nations weren't at war. They weren't allowed to be. They were all under the reign of the Persian Empire. Fun fact, the Persian Empire was bigger than the Roman Empire. Right? That's big. <laughs> and it, uh, it, it reigned over a greater population of the world, sorry, greater percentage of the world's population than any other empire in history. Right? So we're talking about an enormous uh, empire uh, until it got defeated by Alexander the Great. So these, these nations weren't actually kind of, well, they couldn't technically be at war with big armies attacking each other uh, because they knew that any trouble uh, would just be squashed very quickly and decisively uh, by the Persians. Uh, so it's more likely that, what that, uh, that the opposition that they were doing were potentially little skirmishes or, or just basically trying to annoy and disrupt they just, they just didn't want the wall to be built, but they also didn't want the, to annoy the Persians. Uh, they didn't want to get unwanted attention, especially considering uh, that Nehemiah had received special permission from Artaxerxes to build the wall, and that actually Artaxerxes was actually paying for the wall. Uh, so, but whatever they were attempting to do, however they were attempting to attack, uh, it was enough to warrant uh, worrying about defending themselves. We read in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, that the workers actually went about their business, holding their materials and their tools in one hand and a sword in the other hand. Um, I don't know how many people have ever tried building a wall. Um, it's not easy. Uh, Imagine doing it with one hand, terrified that you're about to be attacked, and holding a sword at the same time. Uh, that is, you know, an ominous thought. Uh, but their efforts seemed to have uh, put off the attack, uh, because they weren't attacked. Uh, Nehemiah, again, credits God's provision uh, for them not attacking. And so the work continues. And then chapter 6, uh, we read of further opposition. And here the, uh, the enemies seem to be getting a little bit sneakier. Uh, so I'll just read out the first nine verses. So when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that uh, I had rebuilt the wall. Uh, so they've rebuilt the wall by this point. Um, and not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. Sanbalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I sent them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his, sent his aid to me with the same message. 
and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will go back to the king, to Artaxerxes. So come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing, like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will be too weak for their work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. So Sanballat, Balat, Sanballat, however you pronounce it, he's basically trying to blackmail Nehemiah. He's threatening to tell the Persian king Artaxerxes that they are about to revolt. This is a big threat knowing how the Persians would likely deal with revolution. But Nehemiah calls the bluff. He says, you're just making that all up. That's not true at all. I know Artaxerxes knows me. Come on. He's going to believe me. He knows that I'm not going to revolt. And as far as we know, that letter was never sent. He called their bluff, and they said, okay, fair enough. But the point here is that there was opposition to the community. There was opposition brewing to the rebuilding of the wall, to the reconstruction and the re-identification of this community. Earlier, uh, when we first meet Sanballat and Tobiah, it says that they had become uh, disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And then a bit later, start mocking the Israelites and again, uh, even ask if they are revolting against Artaxerxes. So from the very beginning, they have not wanted this wall to succeed. Why? Maybe they were jealous. They don't want the extra economic competition uh, that a thriving community can bring to the region. Or maybe they were just wary that uh, this nation would become strong and would become a threat to them. This is the way, this is what happens, right? This is the way it often goes. People get jealous of other people's success and try to tear it down. They get threatened by new things, by new innovations. And they, they, don't, they don't respond well uh, to new people doing new things. I think there are forces and people, unfortunately, in the world that don't want to see the church grow and succeed. And the more successful the church is, the more they feel threatened. Of course, we shouldn't be surprised. This is what happened to Jesus. John tells us that in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. He was in the world the world was made through him, but did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Later in John 15, Jesus tells his disciples the world will hate them. That if the world persecuted him, the world will persecute them. 
But he says, they will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. There is a force in the world that reacts in fear and anger whenever God moves and does something. I think the reason the nations surrounding the Israelites did not want the wall to be built was because of what the wall represented, a community dedicated to serving God. And today, the Christian community, the church, often gets that same response, a response inspired by some malicious presence that fears the light of God. In our our comfortable Western society, we do have it physically easy. Uh, Of course, that means that we do have a great deal of responsibility to actually go out and do something uh, for those less fortunate. There are areas in the world where the church is severely being persecuted and the churches in these areas where people are being executed simply for being Christian, they're the same church, they're the same body that we are a part of. We should be praying regularly for them. But I think sometimes the most harmful and destructive forces often not come often not come from the outside, but actually attack from within. So a wall can be a barrier that can stop unwanted foes attacking us. So what walls do we need to build to protect ourselves and our community? What poisonous attitudes or activities can happen within the church that we have to defend ourselves from that could ultimately do harm? I've already mentioned Galatians 5, which lists uh, the fruit of the Spirit, the markers that should identify a Christian community. But in this passage, uh, Paul is contrasting this with a variety of other activities that we should avoid. He says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And then in Ephesians 4, he lists other things, including speaking lies, refusing to reconcile a broken relationship, stealing, unwholesome talk, bitterness, slander, malice, greed. So basically, there's a lot of things that we have to defend ourselves from. There are a lot of things that we have to build walls uh, to defend uh, our community, our identity. And some of those, you might think, are obvious and of course wouldn't happen. Surely not. But some are less obvious. Jealousy, for example, is so easy and can be so destructive, as can selfishness and bitterness. Also, uh, this in line with jealousy and envy, comparing churches is also dangerous. Which one has the better music, the better youth program, the better facilities, the better coffee? This happens. This happens, and it can, it can wrench communities apart. I have seen churches wrenched apart and left in tatters as a result of an affair or even from just factions within the church forming, factions that uh, just refuse to uh, come to some sort of reconciliation. 
And again, we could spend whole sermons going through each one of these. But in the end, it's just about anything that disrupts relationship. It's important that we build walls to defend our community from these things, like impurity and factions, greed and so on. And to do so, to build these defensive walls, we should practice those markers of a Christian community. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. A church that worships God, loves one another, practices these fruit, will be a church with strong walls. And our identity in Christ will be obvious. So I've just got one point. I've spoken for a little while. (laughs) One final point, and that is that God's glory shines through community. Throughout these several chapters of Nehemiah, he is constantly attributing success to God. It was God, uh, it was because of God that Artaxerxes granted Nehemiah's uh, very, very bold uh, request. When Sanballat, Tobiah and uh, Geshem ridiculed Nehemiah's effort, he simply responded by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. God frustrated their attempts to disrupt the construction. Nehemiah says to the buildings, our God will fight for us. And as we'll see in a moment, that again happens as the wall is finished. Now that doesn't mean that Nehemiah could sit back and let God do it all. Yes, he prayed regularly and attributed success to God, but he was constantly active. He was organized and he made plans. And that attitude, I'm reminded of what uh, of what Augustine said, pray as though everything depends on God. Work as though everything depends on you. It's that cooperative effort, trusting God, but then actually getting out there and doing something, offering thoughts and prayers, but then doing something, acting. And so Nehemiah 6, and verses 15 and 16, says that the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid, lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. So it only took 52 days to build the wall, which is impressive, very impressive. Of course, Uh, They weren't starting from scratch. I do question how strong a wall uh, built by perfume makers uh, could be. No offence meant to the perfume making industry, but 52 days is still very, very quick. And that is a testimony to not only Nehemiah's organisational and leadership ability, but also to the passion and enthusiasm of just the general population. And here again is an image of community. I believe that as the wall is being rebuilt, uh, the community is being rebuilt. And it's because of all of that, the passion, the obedience, and the remarkable speed of the construction 
of the wall that the surrounding nations could see God. The wall represented their identity as the physical demarcation of their community, a community set apart to serve God. And through that community, God is exalted. And that is precisely what happens within the church. Jesus says in John 13, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men and women will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And this is what we need to do. Like Nehemiah, we can't sit back and expect God to do everything. Rather, we should work hard at loving one another and practicing the fruits of the Spirit. So just to finish, I've been saying this morning that the walls for Nehemiah represented both a barrier and a boundary. The wall was a central feature in their re-identification as the walls were being rebuilt, so was the community. For us today, the central feature of our identity is Christ, and that is shown by loving one another. Our identity is demonstrated through love. We need to defend ourselves from these things which might tear down our community by building a wall of love. Our identity is defended by love. And through this love, God is demonstrated to the world. God is exalted in our love. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, that you are love. We read that you are love. And that love was demonstrated so incredibly by the sacrifice and the obedience of your son, Jesus. For that, we are eternally grateful. Lord, help us to love one another as you have loved us. Help us to build uh, our walls, those things that identify our community. Help us to work hard at those. Help us to work hard at love. And Lord, we pray desperately, Lord, that you will help us and that you will shine through uh, that construction project, in a sense. Lord, be with us. Help us. Work through us. And thank you for the privilege that, that you do work through us. Thank you for the example set by Nehemiah, a man of both faith, commitment, and was hardworking, practical, Help us, Lord, to build up our community centered on love. Amen.